This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And we actually are live on campus from the University of Pennsylvania Warren School here in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Welcome to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Word School. We have our senior economist and Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. In the studio, we have Michael Green, who is the Chief Strategist Portfolio Manager for Simplify ETS, a Penn graduate. His daughter's here at Wharton. Michael, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, coming on campus. We're going to have a great discussion. Just quick quick notes. I'm a registered representative for Sign Fund Services. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Professor, a lot of data out, a lot of economic data out. We got a lot of earnings out. You got some mixed reactions to all those earnings. Give us your current take. Right. Um, so the data is coming in still pretty strong. Um, certainly, we we had a, a, pr- a pretty strong third quarter, 4.9, which was above the Wall Street estimates. This is GDP growth, although a little bit below the Atlanta Fed, which tends to be a, a little over-optimistic, but that's really strong. Um, people are just beginning to formulate their um, estimates for the uh, fourth quarter, J.P. Morgan has said that now it sees upside risk to its one and a half percent. It might be as high as two uh, percent or even more. I mean, um, uh, the, the global USS uh, global S&P uh, U.S. Um, PMIs look good. Uh, uh, the durable goods look good. Uh, even the new house sales, although lagged, looks good. Uh, unemployment claims ticked up a bit, but still extremely low. Um, you know, I, I would put a um, bit of a caution. Money supply did come out, and um, it is showing some weakness again. In fact, you know, it it, it plunged all the way in, until April, and then we had three consecutive months of increases. But its decline the last two months still stands above what it is in April. But it is just not growing fast enough. In my opinion, to, to um, if it if it persists this way, to to be a robust economy. Of course, there's a big lag between that and what's going to happen on on to the real economy. I just say that's something that uh, one should law uh, one one should look at. Copper has been mixed to weak. We should look at those market indicators. Uh, next week we get the case shower. The problem with the case shower again, great index. But it's going to be for August. And we all know that the surge of yields was September, October. That's brought it above 8%. On a, so uh, the analysts are expecting a rise in case show as well as the FH, uh, H, uh, FHA housing authority numbers. But again, they are lagged before this latest surge. The, the buzz is that it is bringing down and more, much more caution into the home price area um, uh, but again, we will not actually uh, see that for a couple of months. Earnings are are okay; they're mixed. Um, uh, uh, we've got a big swing between value and growth, depending on whether a lot of uh, a lot of value stocks have been doing okay with, with lower expectations. Um, but uh, the growth stocks have, by and large, come through, and are are showing lion's share of the increase in earnings that we see here in the third quarter. Um, I would want to mention that there are two um, um, uh, clouds on the horizon that might be parting. Um, uh, Certainly the UAW, uh, we had a tentative agreement with Ford. We are getting news of a tentative agreement with GM. Now, this is not going to be cheap for any of them. And Ford was definitely disappointing. I mean, uh, it said it's not going to pursue EV or going to take 12 billion dollars away from EV development. Um, uh, so these are expensive, uh, uh, certainly settlements, but at least that does, uh, um, you know, keep those plants going and more importantly, keeps all the supplier plants going. If we get it uh, with the big three, it looks like that. Also, the election of a new House Speaker uh, 
uh, in my mind, um, I don't think he's going, I think he's going to try to avoid a government shutdown in the middle of next month. I, I think, um, uh, you know, he's conservative and certainly c- c- cares about spending, but I don't think he wants to debut as a speaker <laughs> with having the government shut down. So I think he's, I think we're, that, that cloud is a little bit more optimistic going forward. The clouds that are a little pessimistic, I mean, we had a big jump in one year, University of Michigan ex, uh, inflation expectations, uh, something that Powell has mentioned from 38 to 4.2%, which is um, not as high certainly it has been. And I don't know how much it might have been affected by uh, the Hamas uh, attack on Israel that might have raised expectations of an oil surge and therefore higher gasoline prices that not yet to be certain. The five-year remained unchanged at uh, a 3.0%. Uh, uh, of course, next week is the big week. We're going to get the employment report uh, and, um, and, and quite a few others. Inflation, PCE came in basically as expected. All the inflation has been coming in at or a tiny bit above uh, the expectation. I still think that on November 1st, um, uh, Powell will bring everyone across the finish line with no increase. Um, um, I don't think there'll be a dissent. He uh, seems to be masterful at that. But definitely in his news conference, he's going to leave open the fact that they may act in December. Uh, there's a lot of data, another six weeks of data uh, certainly to come um, uh, before then. Uh, but he will definitely leave the door open because certainly the news on the inflation front, although certainly has not been bad, has not been, um, you know, extraordinarily uh, favorable. But I think the rise in real rates and and all that is going to convince everyone we've got to wait and see how this filters through the market because they're certainly getting a lot of feedback from uh, those sectors that are hurt by high rates. Well, I'd love to bring in Michael for a few minutes of interaction here with you, Professor. So, so Michael, as you think about where the economy is, we're going to talk, we have you for the whole show, but if you quickly summarize your take on the recent data, any questions you would post to the professor or any comments on your overall view of the economy, where it is? Sure. So, you know, knowing a little bit about what Jeremy has said in the past and obviously hearing his commentary there, I think that there are a couple of things that I might expand on or, or treat slightly differently. One is, you know, the Ford reports, a lot of focus has been on the increase in costs, the labor pressure coming from the UAW, et cetera. You know, the reality is, is that the 30% wage increase that the UAW extracted, that dates back to a 2019 contract. There were no cost of living allowance adjustments or anything else. And so what you've actually seen is really just a normalization, not any sort of extraordinary increase. Their wage increases are not significantly above average wages over that time period. Um, and the UAW itself had actually taken a huge step back. Um, you know, Ford basically presented this as the demands that are being made by the union are the cause of all these problems. The reality is, is that EVs aren't selling. They're overly, they're overpriced, they're underperforming, they've tried to push the technology too fast forward. Tesla obviously has a compelling product in a variety of ways. The long-term durability of their business model is certainly something that people have a lot of questions about. You've seen Hertz give guidance recently saying how much more expensive the Teslas were than they actually thought they were. So, you know, this is a really challenging time in spaces like the auto industry. And I think it's interesting that labor is basically being treated as the whipping boy on a lot of Mm. this stuff. I don't see a wage cost, a wage price spiral. I don't think that's ever really actually existed. It's a... Um, you know, common myth associated with the 1970s. On the inflation front, I agree with Jeremy, although I would point out that all of the inflation beats that are actually happening are tied to a mysterious and as yet unexplained jump in owner's equivalent rent that happened in the last period. PCE is a late report, um, as you would expect, as is GDP. And so we saw this unanticipated, unexpected spike in a metric that we know trails by at least 12 to 15 months. The San Francisco Fed has written quite eloquently on this recently. Um, And if we look at contemporary measures of those inflation numbers, they're actually suggesting that a year forward from now, we'll be looking at deflation in many of the housing categories. I think the scariest thing to me about what the Fed has done is hike rates to the point where even if we use the current numbers, they're strongly positive. The real rates are extremely high. If we use forward-looking metrics like break-evens, they're among the highest levels we've ever seen. Um, And now suddenly we're actually facing a situation in which we could see a very rapid deterioration in some of the core components of inflation, things like that owner's equivalent rent. 
that in turn the Fed has decided and articulated that they're going to be very slow to respond to because they want to put the nail in the coffin. I just think the Fed has actually created a situation in which they're making two mistakes in a row, right? First, they were slow to withdraw stimulus, and then they hiked far too fast, far too rapidly. And I think a lot of people are, myself included, somewhat surprised that more things haven't broken, particularly in the aftermath of the banking crisis in March. Um, but the simple reality is, is that we have termed out debt across all of our economy, whether that's people who have 30-year mortgages, et cetera. That means that the impact is going to be very cliff-like in its experience, right? It's only when people go to refinance that debt that we actually see that pass through. We're starting to see that hit the smaller stocks. We're starting to see it hit private stocks in particular. Small business is experiencing a very high level of bankruptcy. Um, and that's going to spread to the other parts of the economy over time. It just is going to take time. Yeah, Professor, that sounds... So, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, well, you know, I was uh, also with you on how slow they were. And then I got very alarmed on the decline in the money supply. But in July, seeing how strong the economy was... Um, you know, I, I said maybe it could re uh, stand these real rates uh, much better than we thought because of faster growth um, and, and, and other factors. So I turned much less bearish on the economy. Uh, I certainly say that there's threats. Uh, we, you know, on this program, we've talked about the lags of the housing. We've created our own current housing indexes and and, uh, you know, we've 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 talked about that uh, a lot and as far as Ford is concerned and GM, you know, you know, the, the, their total market value is small. So it's not, you know, no, what, what happens to them isn't going to be all that important. What happens to Tesco becomes much more important, um, although I, I heard they just raised one price and they do have lower costs um, for it. Also, I think gave up uh, one of its protections, which prohibited the UAW from striking against an individual plant. Um, and I think that that was given up, but uh, the, the, final, um, uh, the final details on that are yet to be seen. Um, as far as how fast the Fed will react on the downside, um, it's a political year. Uh, we're one year just about from national elections. Uh, we all know that uh, the Democrats can't really stand a recession, and uh, if Powell wants to be renominated, which comes a few months after uh, the election, uh, he, uh, you know, doesn't want to, uh, you know, he doesn't want to produce a recession. I think as time goes on, they're going to be more responsible, you know, in terms of the American public complains about high prices. He's not bringing them down. He's bringing the rate of inflation down. And if you talk about the trade-off between, let's say, one or two points faster on the rate of inflation versus a million and a half people unemployed, um, I think the politics of the situation is very clear. Doesn't guarantee. That's just my feeling that as time goes on and as political pressure ramps up, that if we do see weakness, um, that we will be more willing to bring it down because, as you say, we are in a in a very, very uh, tight situation right now. Yeah, I mean, the, the only component that I would add to that um, is we're also in a really interesting position where we're seeing a, what I would describe as a, a bifurcated economy. If you're a college graduate, the economy is much weaker than you're used to it being. Rates of unemployment for college grads are currently around 2.1%. That feels very low when we compare it to the overall unemployment rate at 3.7%. But that 2.1% is roughly double what it was actually when Jeremy now would have graduated from college, for example. It used to be far less supply of college grads. We're now actually seeing extended duration of unemployments and higher levels of unemployment for college grads. In contrast, amongst the less skilled, and I use that in air quotes because I don't necessarily think that that is exactly the right definition of it. But when you think about the quantity of labor that is being supplied at the lower end scale, those who are willing to change bedpans, et cetera, it's unquestionably in contraction. In fact, those without college those without college degrees in the U.S. labor force has actually stayed totally flat basically since the year 2000, while the population of those with college degrees has expanded by about 50%. The problem is, is that all of our systems for monitoring how the economy degrades are built around that lower end cyclical aspects of the economy. We don't do a great job of tracking the um, unemployment 
characteristics of the higher skilled economy. Things like the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, for example, completely ignores anyone who makes over $125,000 a year. It's actually in the construction of the index. So there's all sorts of interesting wrinkles that are happening as our economy matures and changes in its construction. Um, I actually think it's weaker than you do currently, Jeremy. And I think the the uh, the most likely outcome, unfortunately, is, is that these third quarter numbers get revised down in the same way we saw the third and fourth quarters revised down in the 2007-2008 period. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we've been talking about the fact that it is lower age for the first time in decades, lower wages are going up much faster than the higher wages. And definitely we should mention that AI could accelerate that trend. Agreed. Um, because I think it will eat into, uh, you know, what had been more of the college uh, educated type of uh, thing. So, you know, what had, you know, been a big gap for many, many years, maybe closing, you can call that good or bad. We'll have to see how that uh, really uh, washes out. I agree with you. Professor, thanks for some time to kick off the show. You get a former student back on the sh- on the show. You have two former students here now on on the show. Thanks for joining us to kick off the show here, Professor. Well, thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much. So I'm going to continue my conversation. We got Michael Green, who is a chief strategist, portfolio manager for Simplify, back on campus. Michael, good to be, have you in the studio. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I was excited to send a message. My daughter, as you know, is also here at the University of Pennsylvania uh, at Wharton. Um, and so it was fun to send her a message. I'm going to be in the Huntsman building. And she's like, well, I'm in class, so I can't come to see it, but I'll listen to it afterwards, Dad. <laughs> That's more than I could say for my family listening. I don't think she's actually going to listen. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, t- tell us a little bit about um, you know your career from Penn to yeah. Simplify. Tell us how you found Simplify and and what made attracted you to join them. Sure. So um, long career. I graduated from Penn back in 1992 uh, and have done basically everything in investment management, from running mutual funds to separate accounts to hedge funds to ETFs. Um, kind of the critical components that I would would highlight along the way. Um, I uh, founded and ran the New York office for Canyon Partners, which is a large multi-strat hedge fund based out in California. Uh, Did that for about eight years, was then um, hired out of Canyon or actually pulled out of Canyon to the opportunity to run my own hedge fund seated by the Soros Foundation. Um, Did that for a couple of years and then uh, made the transition to managing Peter Thiel's capital, which was a really interesting experience. Um, Incredibly bright guy. Very different structure than I think most people would get to manage assets under. Um, and then I decided or I saw an opportunity to effectively step into markets that I thought were actually in a, you know, change in a fairly meaningful way because of the, some of the components that we'll talk about around the dynamics of passive penetration, the growth of passive and index strategies, how that changes things. And at the same time, the opportunity set emerged for Simplify um, with regulatory change. And so... Traditionally, ETFs, it's been very hard to do under a 40-act type product, the types of strategies that are traditionally available in a hedge fund or would be available in a hedge fund. Things like using leverage, things like using derivatives, et cetera. Those also tend to be really unattractive strategies for high net worth individuals because of their tax inefficiency. And so if there's a tax structure that makes sense, an institution, for example, they can benefit from hedge fund strategies that might not work for traditional asset manager, traditional high net worth individuals, for example. It tends to be more almost of an ego trade than anything else. I'm an investor in X brilliant hedge fund, right, yeah. than, than anything else. Um, in 2019 and 2020, the rules changed around ETFs. And so first there was what's called the ETF rule that actually, exciting and, and diverse name, but it actually facilitated the introduction of new strategies into ETFs. And then in 2020, in September of 2020, there was the introduction of what was called the derivative rule, again, catchy name, that allowed the inclusion of traditionally um, frowned upon derivative strategies within ETFs and mutual funds, as long as you were able to establish effectively a benchmark and limit the leverage that you had against that. So it needed to be fully disclosed, et cetera. That opened up the opportunity for Simplify. I, um, one of my uh, good friends and colleagues, Harley Bassman, was actually one of the first on board at Simplify, effectively stepping in as a senior investor and as a you know, thought leader in the space, helping them develop some products. Um, I was called by Harley almost immediately. He said, you got to come see what we're doing. And so in early 2021, I joined Simplify. 
and have been doing this ever since. We're now up to about $3 billion in assets under management. We've got about 20 different funds that we're managing. Um, and it's been a fantastic experience. And it's, it's interesting. Some of them seem like super complex, but you got the simplify name. Yes. It's got this contrast. In. Well, you, well, you actually pronounce the simplify name right. Half the time I go on shows and people are like, Simplify? Like, what, <laughs> how do you pronounce this name? Um, it is simplify, and you are exactly correct. Like, actually, the irony is, is that our platform is built around alternative strategies. So, you know, all sorts of really interesting things that have never seen the light of day in mutual funds, things like... Harley's product, for example, is is um, uh, an interest rate hedge product that is now for the second consecutive year in a row, the top performing ETF. It's up like two hundred percent, and it's very it's a very simple strategy that you often see within the hedge fund space, which is what's called a payer swaption. It's an option on higher interest rates um, that we've just never seen in mutual fund or ETF forty act form, but is a fantastic tool that's now available to RAAs or individuals that are worried about hedging their exposure, that can play through for an individual and everything ranging from owning bond funds, right, to an individual who owns homes, right, and is concerned about mortgage rates going up, it can function as a hedge in that mm -hmm. sort of framework as well. And so that's been a product that we've been, been thrilled by. But yes, I agree with you that they tend to Simplify is a great name in terms of identifying what we're trying to do, make these tools available to simplify the process of obtaining them for investors. In particular, um, registered investment advisors tends to be our target market. Some institutions are starting to use those products. Um, but it is, it, it's poorly named in terms of the actual complexity of the products yeah. themselves. So, so, so sticking on Harley's concept for yep. a second, and, and he's, uh, I've been a reader of his, I got to sit next to him at dinner once and got signed up to his Convexity Maven yes. uh convexitymaven.com yes is one of his his regular distribution lists for all of his content um is as you as you think about that strategy is that going to always be betting on higher rates is, 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 when people think about etfs they think of something that will be consistent for an asset allocation exposure that they can have some but when you get to active you got to start keeping track of well are they making any active bets on what they're usually going to be so is that one always going to be you think on sort of looking at for higher rates that product will always be on higher rates and harley and i actually have had this explicit conversation we have used various products that we create within simplify it's actually one of the primary reasons why I create these tools. I want to use them myself and my strategies. Um, but in the case of, of that strategy, we're likely to keep it there, but we also do actively manage the exposure so that it maintains relatively constant what's you know referred to as beta, right, or response function to higher interest rates. So because it's an option, and this is where Harley's name, the convexity maven, comes from, right, it behaves in a nonlinear fashion, it effectively appreciates more and more and becomes more aggressive in its response function to rates as they rise. Um, and so that requires us to actually ma actively manage both the um, tenor of the option that we're running within that portfolio and the strike level at which it's it's currently struck. So when we initially did that, we were targeting, a, I think, a level of four and a half on rates. Now we're up closer to five. We've had to increase the quantity of treasuries in there so that it doesn't radically pick up an additional beta exposure doesn't become more volatile in response to higher interest rates. Um, but that product will always be that. Now, on the flip side of that, Harley is actually in the process of creating a new strategy that takes advantage of the opportunities that are created by higher rates um, in an area that he's extraordinarily well known for uh, in the mortgage space. We think that there's some real opportunities for investors to gravitate or move towards fixed income allocations. And so while that product will remain focused on higher rates, there's other products we have that are actually focused around benefiting from lower rates. That's a, a great tease to our last week episode. I don't know if you listened to Dave Goodson on our podcast last week from Voya. He is PM on our one of our mortgage strategies, and he is a, you know, he was talking about the opportunity there that the spreads in some of these more agency mortgage Amazing. securities have widened out to like 99th percentile and 7% yeah. yield. Some investment grades double digits in some of these things. Yeah, no, I mean, people forget that for the most part, the mortgage market at this stage is basically government paper, right? Um, it does have a callable feature to it. And so there are fears that if interest rates were to get cut, that a lot of mortgages would get called and you'd be basically restriking them lower. The premium that you're paying for that is at the 99th percentile, exactly as he's highlighting. We see a lot of institutional investors beginning to wake up to this. But honestly, this is one of these situations where I would highlight that retail investors often managing their own accounts can move much faster 
than institutions can, right? Um, this is one of the more interesting features of the markets that we have today. And, and candidly, Professor Siegel is somewhat responsible for some of it, which is people tend to think about returns over very long time frames, right? And so they tend to think that, well, stocks have an endogenous return of 8% or 11% a year, depending on what time period you're going to use. And so why would I ever change my allocations based on a shift in market structure? We've seen one of the craziest shifts you know, almost in the history of markets just in the last 18 to 20 months where the level of real interest rates has gone from, yeah. you know, negative 1% to it was just north of 3%, you know, a couple of days ago, right? Or a couple of weeks ago. Now it's somewhere in the, you know, 2.5% range, but you can lock that in. That's a historically extraordinarily attractive rate. You can lock that in now for 30 plus years. Um, and nobody's really changing their allocations yet because of that change simply because we tend to operate in a model-driven market. We tend to operate in a world in which we look at a historical return profile and say, well, that's what I expect going forward. There's, it's interesting you talk about Siegel getting people to focus on stocks for the long run as yep. the thesis. Uh, I got somebody quipping to me, I should, we should be talking about bonds for the long run now when are we going to yeah. publish that book. But you know, you, you had Larry Fink actually, I, 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 I don't know where he was quoted as saying this, but I saw a lot of headlines about Fink saying pensions are going to take this opportunity of higher yields and uh, sort of immunize their liabilities and go sell equities, buy bonds, because now yields are so much higher. Do, do you think that's on the cards? We are absolutely starting to see those discussions. But those are discussions precisely because there is a process, right? They're, it's very rare that you have, a in an institutional setting, a single manager who has discretion and authority to change a total allocation like that. Even a CIO will almost always be beholden to their investment committee for that type of change. Um, and those discussions are starting to happen. But they haven't happened, is I guess the way I would phrase it. So we're seeing an increase coming from um, the household sector to a certain extent, although there's some muddying of the waters there because of how it's defined. Um, we're starting to see managers that have discretion starting to increase their allocations. But that big shift has not happened yet. And you know, I, I have actually spoken about this before. The last time I saw something like this happen was actually in the spring of 2000, where you saw, you know, long-standing allocations. We used to allocate money to managers for an extended period of time. There wasn't the flexibility to go in and out like you have with ETFs. And basically, over the time period from 98 until early 2000, you had most institutions who had allocated to, say, technology funds, found themselves fantastically overweight, those technology funds, because they had, you know, allocated to them. They kept the allocations. And the performance was so extraordinary. Um, in the spring of 2000, you actually saw those investment committees sit down, make allocation changes and say, hey, we're going to change where we're putting the capital. We're going to reduce some of the money that's in technology. When they tried to do that, it caused the market to crack, right? It caused the break that we call the dot-com collapse. I actually was sitting in a seat where I physically felt that happen on the day the NASDAQ collapsed in on March 10th, 2000, it was down like 7%. My small cap value portfolios, which were the beneficiary of those flows, were up like 6.5% in a single day, right? So there's a 13.5% swing. We've seen some of those actions. We've seen that between quality and junk, for example, momentum and value in the past couple of years. But we just haven't seen that sort of radical reallocation happening in the bond equity world. That was a scene of the crime. I was here as an undergrad. Siegel was yep. part of the part of the crime scene with his yep. op-ed that day. Big cap tech stocks are a sucker's bet that yep. day. Yep. <laughs> so that there's a we're all related here to that scene of the crime. Yeah. Um, I, I want to come back to your point that you know people have zoomed out to the stocks for long run narrative, but also and you guys focus a lot on this options market. You have the exact opposite that people's attention span seems to be focused second by second, yeah. and you have these zero. With the zero data expiry options now, yeah. The, so this huge move in the options market towards that daily trading expiry, what is the the impact on the market? Do you think from the focus on those day trading users, who you what's your view of who's using that? How it's dynamic? How it's shifting the volatility dynamics that you guys focus on a lot? To simplify, sure. So um, 
there's a couple of components around that. First, um, a lot of people, you know, kind of treat this as like, you know, the speculative zenith of Western society, right? You know, people are day trading options um, at extraordinary, you know, levels of, of uh, volume. And you've now actually seen option volume exceed the underlying securities volume. You know, these are all statistics that people like to quote. Um, the thing I would point out most to people is remember what you're actually doing with with options is by and large you're providing forms of insurance that are modifying the payoffs associated with equities. Um, it's hard to get that deep in trouble in an insurance contract that is one day, right? It can move fantastically against you. And if you're really stupid in how you allocate your capital or the risks that you take on, you can absolutely blow up. But it is hard to blow up the world, right, on a single day of trading activity. You tend to see people being reasonable about that. Those who are taking outsized bets in the space tend to be retail on the long side, trying to bet on punting in one direction or another. Again, the most you can lose there is just the premium that you've expended. And so the one of the primary, quote unquote, benefits, and I, I again, I use air quotes and I do that a lot, but... One of the benefits has been an increase in losses from the retail sector that are compensating um, Wall Street more, right? Feature, uh, I, and, and I say that sarcastically. Um, the second thing that is is ultimately going on there, though, is um, that you're seeing an increasing usage from the institutional space, both those who want to sell options, and remember that about 85% of options expire worthless, and so when you have the odds stacked in your favor in that manner, you ultimately want to do it as many times as you possibly can. So moving to zero data expiry options has actually been a real benefit for the vol selling regime that unquestionably has lowered the levels of volatility that we're seeing in the market. Um, and then the last big user, and this is actually by far the dominant user, is actually the option market makers themselves. And so about 85% of the volume that we see in that market is firms like Citadel and Susquehanna trading amongst themselves rather than having to go over to the futures exchange and use put call parity to synthetically replicate those options. And so it's actually made the markets much deeper and much more liquid. Now, the downside to it is just that it's become much more powerful in the market as well, right? And so increasingly, there's a non-fundamental source of demand and supply that's occurring based on option positions that are in place. And as markets themselves become increasingly inelastic tied to the growth of strategies like passive, that simply behave almost like an insider, right? They're really never gonna sell um, in reaction to news. It can cause price action to become more volatile in many situations. So, so far my verdict on zero data expiry options is like there's been a lot of hyperbole about how terrible they are. On net, I think they're probably a net positive, um, but they do open up some unique risks in terms of how markets behave that I think are, are still underappreciated. These options are lowering volatility and people sort of look, there's a index called the VIX, the volatility index, and people look for spikes in that index as signs of capitulation in markets. We never really got during some of the sell-offs last year, like you never saw VIX really spike as much as people were looking for in some of these. You actually saw it in the bond market yep. more than in, in VIX. Is, is the zero date options tied to that suppression at all? What's, what's your sense of what that's happening on the VIX market? Yeah, I think that's, so I think that's absolutely true. So um, one of the other comments I made was it's hard to get in trouble selling insurance contracts that are one day in expiry, right? So it turns things much more like a casino where it's a numbers game. When I think about what the VIX actually is, the VIX is the strip of options on the S&P 500 ranging from theoretically zero all the way up to infinity that expire in 30 days, right? Um, why would I buy insurance 30 days out if I can buy insurance for an event that happens tomorrow? So I have specificity around that actual event. It reduces some of the uncertainty of how other events might mute that dynamic. Um, while we didn't see the VIX spike last year, we did see the zero data expiry options spike to extraordinary levels. And so I, I absolutely think that one of the contributing factors to not seeing the sort of extraordinary spikes in VIX that we've seen in prior periods was the availability of these shorter dated contracts. They really became broadly available starting in April of 2022. They'd always kind of been available because like a three-month contract would mature. You'd have it on its last day. We call those like quarterly expiry, et cetera. But the broad availability of that took a lot of that away. And so like when you talk about 
the levels of implied volatility, you know, there were some events in late September, October, even into November, where either Powell was speaking or there was a CPI report, the general concerns around inflation were particularly acute at that time. And you would see the one-day VIX contract, right? That one-day contract would spike north of 80. So, I mean, it would basically be implying that, hey, the market could move. 80 basically works out to somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 to 7% move in a single day mm. for the S&P 500. That's a huge premium to pay. But if I'm only paying it for one day, I'm not going to lose nearly as much money as if I'm trying to protect myself for 30 days, right? And so that absolutely has had an impact on changing that. And I do think that that was one of the key contributors to the behavior we saw last year. Very interesting. This is like really in the weeds of uh, this volatility hedging and, and all sorts of stuff. But in the VIX, the, people have talked about the VIX futures market and, yep. there, and, and for futures... Uh, for our average listener on Sirius Radio, there's this term structure of the futures market. Futures are like these commodities. People trade commodities using futures. And there's a what's called an upward slope or a downward slope in the futures curve. Uh, and it, there's this cost of rolling futures and all sorts of things. It's usually the VIX curve, the VIX futures curve, volatility future curve. You usually see a lot higher volatility in the future. Has that changed at all with all this dynamics of the shape of the futures curve for all these options? It it has, right? And so what you were referring to, that upward slope basically says, you know, I'm more uncertain about what happens far off onto the future versus what happens tomorrow, right? Um, with the advent of zero data expiry options, it allows us to say, well, I kind of think the future is going to look a lot like the present, but there's this pivotal event, right? Jay Powell is speaking tomorrow, right? That could change the path of history and therefore, I want to protect that particular event, right? Um, so, I mean, that's just one of the easiest ways to mechanically think about it. And it absolutely has driven a higher frequency of inversion, right? So that higher level of volatility at the front of the curve. Um, I also apologize to the average listener, right? This is the reason why I'm fairly confident my daughter won't listen to this thing. Because <laughs> I am about as nerdy as you get when it comes to these types of dynamics. It's great. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about you run a bunch of the strategies over at Simplify. One yep. of them is a macro strategy concept. What is macro strategy and how do you position portfolios? Yeah, so macro strategy generally means that you're willing to move cross asset, that sort of same sort of um, discretion that I was referring to. So I have broad capability to move from equities to bonds. I can use derivatives. I use many of the products that we develop at Simplify within that strategy. So for example, um, I currently view interest rates as too high. I think ultimately the Fed is going to have to cut interest rates. That's led me to position in a couple of our strategies that offer levered exposure to those um, futures actually in the fixed income space, both two-year futures and 10-year futures, which would be primary beneficiaries from the Fed ultimately being forced to cut interest rates. Um, likewise, uh, you know, we have the ability to incorporate things like I mentioned our interest rate hedge product or strategies that are tied to managed futures um, that are trend following in nature that allows me to obtain commodity exposure in that fund, et cetera. One of the more interesting questions, I think it's, you know, if you look at the general performance of the U.S. economy that we were talking about with Professor Siegel earlier and the behavior of the U.S. stock market has been the incredible divergence this year between the performance of a very narrow range of super mega caps, right? The Apples, Microsofts, et cetera, of the world and the performance of the majority of stocks. If you look at like the Russell 3000, which is one of the more broad measures of the number of public stocks, the median stock in the Russell 2000, the Russell 3000 is now down like 12% for the year, yeah. right? It's just a terrible overall year in terms of performance. While the S&P is up, I believe right now about 10% and the NASDAQ is up something like 30%, leading most people to be, think, you know, the stock market's fantastic. But it's really not, right? The the market seven tends stocks are great. seven stocks are great, and you know, in the case of the S and P, four hundred ninety three others aren't. Yeah. Um, and for people who think about putting that in portfolios, how um, so you mentioned being able to move things around. Uh, so it sounds like this is people would have a stock allocation, bond allocation. This is in what sort of this alt, a third alternatives category is right. for thinking about how to think about it because it's going to be a dynamic allocation. But um, is there a a benchmark you choose when you think about how to benchmark this kind of concept? Yeah, so I, 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 I technically am benchmarked against the 
okay. uh, portfolio because um, I have the flexibility to move across. And I will be candid that I was too early in the move to bonds this year. So, you know, the 60-40 is kicking my butt is kind of the easiest way to put it. Um, on the same you know front, though, I think most portfolios suffer from not having anything in their portfolio that allows that switch to occur. Right. And so we actually are very mechanically seeing this. If you're allocated to, say, a target date fund, for example, there is no level of interest rates at which that is going to say, wow, we really should just be out of equities and into fixed income. Right. It's only going to do that tied to a glide path that's tied to one variable, which is how old are you or how close to retirement you are. And unfortunately, these have become the dominant vehicles in investors' portfolios. Strategies like the Simplify Macro strategy very rarely are incorporated within individuals' portfolios. We want to provide effectively a tool that people can say, here's how Mike is using Simplify products. Here's how he's structuring yep. it. Um, and so it can be used as both a reference, how are we positioned or how are we thinking about things. It can also function as that role within a person's portfolio where they're looking to have that flexibility to allocate back and forth across different asset classes. Now, you're one of the very active people on Twitter. Uh, I still call it Twitter versus X. <laughs> so but, do I. Um, you, you, I saw one of your tweets recently was on high yield, and this is another area where you're yep. very involved in. Talk about the spreads, the yields in high yield. I, I, I've i talked about, you know, Siegel says, hey, the stocks for long run, you get his long-term data was 7% real after inflation stock. Now it's maybe six and a half, seven percent And you had two to 3% inflation. Now where valuations are, we're lower than that. We're saying, hey, maybe you're getting seven to 8% over a long run from where multiples are today. Maybe people are much more pessimistic, but at least the Siegel worldview, long-term, seventy percent The high yield bonds, you get 9% plus in some of these, which is competitive to stocks. But is there too much risk in high yield? What do you think about the high yield market today? Um, so I, th I think the high yield market has a, a, a very interesting total return profile, which is a combination of the two high risk-free interest rates that candidly the Fed has actually told you are too high, right? They've said we're in restrictive territory. The Fed cannot stay in restrictive territory forever. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, things don't go well. Um, so you know that you actually want to have some form of exposure to fixed income. The second question you have to ask yourself is how much am I being compensated over and above the, the risk-free rate for the risks that I'm taking in high yield? And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because the actual spreads between the risk-free rates and the high yield rates are relatively low, actually. They're you know slightly below average um, in terms of the, those current spreads. That's largely because the sell-off has happened so fast in the risk-free space that we haven't yet seen the response in, in high yield. The strategies that I run tied to that at Simplify incorporate a hedging overlay that is designed to benefit from when credit spreads widen. We use an equity long short overlay where we're going long quality companies, companies that have high earnings, um, high profitability, low levels of debt on their balance sheet where they do have debt, it's termed out. So they have low sensitivity to interest rates. Um, and then we're short a basket of companies that are actually very exposed to the refinancing risks. And the key thing that we don't know in high yield yet is what happens when these companies have to come back and refinance because they have by and large done the same thing that Americans with mortgages have done. They've tried to avoid taking out any new money, yeah. right? Um, and that's the key question as we look at 2024 and 2025 is a lot of these companies are now going to be forced to come to market at what feels like a relatively adverse time. So while I think the absolute yields are attractive, I encourage people to check out products that offer hedge type exposure that, in my opinion, helps you compensate for the risk of that tighter spread. So that's the focus of our, our credit products, for example. And, and that's one of the things you guys do at Simplify, looking yep. at these, what another fancy, what we talked about at the beginning, we said, that, hey, there's some complex stuff here yes. at Simplify, but yep. there's what's called the CDX market, the credit yep. default swaps. And you guys do some things with credit default swaps. We, we, so yes, actually. So within those products, we are adding the capability to actually directly trade CDX, right? Or credit default swaps. Um, this is the big short, you know, sort of narrative. Um, I want to caution people to to recognize that anytime you enter into a quote unquote perfect hedge, right, something like a credit you're default, so you're paying for it. And so that's part of the reason why we've developed alternative hedging strategies that we incorporate in those products. But we're now kind of at a point where candidly that direct hedge is 
probably attractive relative to at least what I see in terms of an economic slowdown and the risk that some of these companies can't refinance. So we're very focused on that stuff, but I like I always want to caution people like be aware of what these markets do, what they're capable of doing, et cetera. What is a tip, if you were had to sim- simply describe, to simplify. <laughs> simplify the cost structure in a credit default swap today, how much you have to pay to get a certain type of protection, or how do you think about the return payoff in some of these credit default swaps? Sure. So when you think about a credit default swap, it's typically quoted as a spread to the underlying. So a high yield contract right now would cost you about 520 basis points, what's called running, right? So 5.2% to insure the portfolio against defaults occurring against an index of high yield names. Um, that's a lot to pay, right? And so you tend not to want to hold that for an extended period of time. You mentioned that high yields returning 9 to 10%. If I'm paying 5.2% to hedge it, well, then guess what? I'm below a 10-year treasury. You buy floating rate treasuries. I just buy floating rate treasuries. I'm much better off in that structure, right? So it, it, there has to be an element of timing and thoughtfulness to when you would actually pursue that direct hedge. In contrast, our equity hedge, even though we haven't seen credit spreads widen, and in fact, over the life of that fund, we've actually seen credit spreads contract, has been a net positive contributor because of the construction of it. It's not a perfect hedge but it's a far more economically efficient hedge. And so it's only at, at rare points in time that I'll say, I gotta go for the, you know, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta go for the full power in terms of the hedging. And unfortunately, this is starting to look like one of those times. Very bleak. Bleak, yes, yes. <laughs> And interesting. Yeah. Um, but um, so let's come back to some of your, your big picture work was on, you, you mentioned this sort of indexing dynamics yeah. and how, the indexes um, contribute to the opportunities in the market. I, I saw one of the posts you were making on some of these European indexes that, that bump up against 10% all the time and, and yep. have some forced selling. But for people maybe not familiar with that work, maybe quickly summarize the, the big picture of the index flows, how it ties into some of the opportunities. Sure. So the single most important thing for people to understand about passive indexing is how, grow, how large it has grown. Right. So when I started my career in 1992, passive indexing was about 1% of the market. Today on um, you know, what I would describe as the best academic research in terms of how large it's become, it's in the neighborhood of 40%. Right? Um, my work suggests it's actually slightly further than that. And I just want to emphasize for people like the simple math of simply adding up Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, et cetera, that's kind of like the proverbial iceberg, right? You're capturing the tip and then six-sevenths of it sitting below. And that's going to be everything ranging from futures, which are, of course, passive in their construction, to separately managed accounts that are run in an indexing framework. They have a mandate that says replicate the index. It's done even cheaper. Um, what are called CITs, which are unregistered versions of mutual funds that are often lo- offered at even lower cost than the low-cost indexing funds. Um, none of those have the sort of headline reporting characteristics of the Vanguard and BlackRock, and as a result, like that surface area you know, of the iceberg doesn't tell you about how large it's become underneath. And so anything that goes from 1% market share to 40% plus market share, you have to be aware of how much that has probably impacted the market. And that's then the second thing that is that is really kicked in is, is in the past couple of years, we've started to ask the really hard questions about how should we see this impact markets? What's the evidence behind it? And that evidence is becoming overwhelming, that the growth of indexing is causing radical increases in correlation, which should, of course, lead to higher volatility. But has, you know, in some ways it has, in some ways it has not, at least so far. Um, it leads to increases in valuation because you're reinforcing momentum characteristics and indexing strategy buys stuff that goes up, buys more of it with the next dollar that comes in. And kind of the most important thing to remember is, is that there is no such thing as a passive investor. Right. The definition of passive investing, according to the literature, is somebody who never transacts. Well, how do you get into the market and how do you get out of the market? And so unless you believe that there's magic, right, which I am not a believer in, having been trained by Jeremy Siegel, right, you have to actually start saying, how is this influencing things and changing it? My problem is not that we have this style of investing. My problem is, is that this style of investing has actually received a mandate from the regulators and from the government that's effectively crowding out everything else. 
So a firm like Wisdom Tree, for example, which is known for relatively low cost ETFs, et cetera, like you guys are active managers. You're selecting sure. a strategy. It's systematic in its construction, but you're at least doing something different. You're expressing a point of view. That point of view can be wrong, but at least it's a point of view that theoretically is guiding the market towards something that you want to accomplish. This idea that we just pile people into passive indices where they're buying every single stock and you know, trying to replicate in a sampling framework every single bond, and that we assume that there are returns behind that, right? The extreme version of Siegel's stocks for the long run, right? Without any thoughtful component around like, how do we change this based on valuations? How do we change this based on inputs like interest rates um, is unfortunately leading us to a condition that I, I think represents tremendous risk, both to retirement accounts and to the markets themselves. We're working on, we did a piece that was the, the backbone for his second book, The Future for Investors, something I did while I was here yep. on campus with him back 20 plus years ago, was the sort of passive, you freeze the portfolio, you don't update it, you never add new stocks. We're working on trying to update it, like doing it. We did it from 1957 when the SP was formed. You didn't buy any of the dynamic index at that time, it outperformed. And it's an interesting set of results that it may work a lot, even more than we thought before. And some of it could be the index effect. You get an announced, you get added to the index. All these things fly. This is when Siegel first became disillusioned with the S&P was in the, I remember the first edition of the book I worked on, the O2 edition, we talked about Yahoo and the huge premiums when Yahoo was getting added and then how much it sets up for disappointment. Uh, it's sort of interesting dynamic, how much of the valuation premium for growth, this NASDAQ led market, how much of it is real economics, earnings growth? How much of it is this fundamentals? We have maybe 40 seconds left. <laughs> okay, so for, in, in 40 seconds. Um, the quick answer is that um, we do have evidence of this. There's there's work done by Ralph Koyajan at the University of Chicago where he examines some of these questions and he basically looks at it in a counterfactual. So when we talk about overvaluation, undervaluation, like it has to be against something. Um, the evidence is, is that the growth of passive investing has led to an increase in valuations of between 50 and 150%. So that would suggest that a stock like Apple is probably, you know, 70% overvalued is kind of the, <laughs> the crazy output that comes from it. But that's relative to a counterfactual, right? And so we just don't know. Is, well, Michael, hard. I wish, uh, well, I'm glad you came to Philly. Uh, glad your daughter's here, uh, captain of the volleyball team. Like, thank you to our producers in the studio. Dion, we've got the cameras rolling. People can see this on video. Thanks to that team, Justin and team. Uh, you can listen to us at our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.